the book of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatol, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatol, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatol, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. God, every Sunday we, we come before this word and we thank you and we are right to do so because, Lord, we know that is a gift to be able to hear your words. And so, Father, again, with eager hearts, we just pray that you would speak to us. God, we know that we need a word from you. And so, Lord, we find it no hard thing to bring you into this time, to ask your spirit to give us ears to hear and eyes to behold Christ. And, Father, we pray that the fruit of our labor, that we would love Jesus more. In whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if I was more prepared, I would have actually brought you the object lesson. But since I'm not, I'm just going to have to explain it to you. But imagine you have a jar, and next to this empty jar is a few walnuts and a bowl of rice. And I tell you, um, all of these things, all these walnuts and this bowl of rice can fit into this jar. And I ask you to do it. And then you, you kind of look at the table, you take a little survey, and you said, okay, well, um, you know, let's not make a mess here. So you get the rice and you kind of maybe get the bowl, plastic bowl, and you kind of squeeze a little bit and you kind of get this little stream of rice going in until all the rice lands in this empty jar. And then you go to take all the walnuts, there's going to be eight or nine of them, and you start, you know, throwing them in there, and you realize the sixth one in, it's getting a little crowded, so you kind of start, you know, pushing them in a little bit, and you get the seventh one in, 
the eighth one is like fallen out, and the ninth one, there's no room for it at all. I'm sure you would have really appreciated if I did, did all that for you, right? But, but you can picture it. You can picture it. I think the, uh, the lesson to be learned there is that if the rice represents all just the kind of normal things of life, Netflix, homework, Snapchat, doing chores, and the walnuts represented maybe the things in life that we ought to give more attention to our priorities. We realize that we'll never have room for our priorities if we just crowd it out by meaningless things. You know, in recent days, I've been encouraged by a number of my pastor friends. They're not really my friends, but I just call them my friends because I'm benefited by them. But I hear John Piper say that social media will be the number one reason as to why we will never be able to have the excuse that we didn't have time to pray. To hear Kevin DeYoung say that, as often as we check our phones and our computers should be the amount of earnestness that we come before the Lord in prayer. We know that prayer should be a priority. We know that being in the Word should be a daily habit. We know that making intentional time with Christians to begin accountability is a, a high calling that we're all called to make. Yet it seems that we would rather scroll our phones, binge watch the new show, sleep through important times where we can be productive with the Lord. And so maybe if you undid the object lesson and you put the walnuts in first and then you poured the rice and you recognize that it all kind of fit around it, that you recognize that maybe the Lord isn't calling you just to live this you know, ascetic life where you have to give up things and to be a spiritual person, you can't ever watch Netflix and you can't have Snapchat or, or Instagram, but, but maybe we just need to understand that, that the Lord is calling us to have first loves, that he is calling us to be people who have spiritual priorities. And if something is a priority, that means that we ought to give it first attention, that we ought to give it our first, you know, amount of energy, that it should be the first thing that comes to our mind when our mind goes blank. And so this little prophet Haggai, I mean, it's one page in your Bible. We you skim through. I mean, I think I even heard some of you guys say, like, I have never opened up to this part of the Bible in my entire life. Don't feel guilty if that's you, because I think it's probably a lot of Christians. But let me just give you the context here. So God has made for himself a people, and God gave them some rules. He gave them some warnings, and, and really before he sent them into the promised land, he gave them this, this big kind of rule to live by. And in Deuteronomy, it's what we read. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings a curse. And you, you guys are like, you know, the, your Old Testament is thick, right? It's just full of stuff. And you know, all these prophets, do you know that's what they were trying to tell the people? You're not being faithful to your side of the covenant. And so if you, if you want to summarize all of what the Old Testament prophets are saying, here's what you could say. Shape up or ship out. If you don't get your act together, God will exile you out of the land. And guess what? The people never shaped up and God ships them out. 
And so the nation of Judah had to go live 70 years in exile in Babylon. Imagine being watching an invading country come and destroy your city, kill most of the inhabitants, and only take the people who they thought were worthy to go live in a foreign land with different values, cultures, and languages. Think of how traumatic that would be for a people group. But yet God is faithful. He made a promise to Abraham that it would be through this family that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God promises them this land. So after 70 years, he brings them back into the land. 50,000 Jews come back with this guy named Zerubbabel, we read about in Haggai here. And here's in essence what they came to. They came back to a Jerusalem that was devastated, where the walls were burnt, where their houses were leveled, where the farms and the crops were just overgrown. They had a lot of work. Too much work. And so as they get back to the promised land, they, they, they know that they need to worship God. They know they need to make him a priority. And so what they did is they, they laid the foundation for the temple. And the temple was the central piece where, where the God's people would come and worship him and know his presence and, and, and be able to learn about the sacrificial system. They laid the foundation. But yet, 10 years goes by, 11 years goes by, 14 years goes by, and the foundation just sits there. And this is where Haggai comes. We don't know much about this prophet. Again, it's not that we call them minor prophets because their message is minor, just because of the length of it, really. And here's all what Haggai wants to teach us and what he was teaching them. So I'll give you my main point here. God desires for your priorities to be him. Pretty simple. God doesn't want to be second best to anything in your life. He wants for your priorities to be him. And so somewhere in the midst of all of the Israel or Judah's excuses, their excuses of apathy, of political pressure, they made priorities other, th- other than, um, excuse me, they made their priority about other things other than God. And I can just tell you guys, even in my own life, it is really easy to come up with good excuses. This week was kind of a blur. I'm sure some of you heard, my aunt's daughter broke her leg. And, uh, and, it, and it was pretty crazy on Wednesday, but things kind of calmed down. But I'll be honest with you. Uh, I kind of used that as a crutch to be able to not do much. It's just really easy to say we're constantly busy, yet we know what we spend our time on, like during the weekends. And I, I think... One of the things that Haggai should be just kind of a mirror to our own life is, is how we are so constantly just thinking about what can I do for my comfort and for my entertainment. And so before we even begin this talk, I just, I just want you to think about your own life. What are your priorities? What are the things that take first interest? So I would encourage you, look at how you spend your time. Look at your interests, your concerns. 
What are your desires? What are your thoughts like? Tim, Tim Keller is helpful here. He says this. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you need nothing else to think about? And I hope this little lesson helps us consider what Haggai is trying to teach us. So I have three points for us. We have the warnings of wrong priorities. We have the commands to get better priorities. And then we'll see in Haggai chapter 1 the solution for better priorities. So let's kind of look down the passage. First point, we get the warning of wrong priorities. So look at verse 6 with me. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Scroll down to verse 9 with me. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. See, in essence, what, what, what the Lord is saying through the prophet Haggai is that because of your stinginess, because of your lack of interest about my house and only your house, I will make you financially ruined. Did you catch, in essence, what they're saying? They, they don't count wealth the same way that we do. But maybe if we were to put it in modern terms, God would say, you invested, but you got negative returns. You put in all the college applications, but I made sure that no one accepted you. You put money in your bank, but I made the bank foreclose on itself. And that's what God is saying. Because you have only cared about yourself, I will do everything in my power to make you feel the, the weight of that. He led them really into poverty. You know, it's funny. You look at so many celebrities and sports stars, and, and all they do, they, they live their lives to get more and more money, more and more stuff, more and more fame. Yeah, I, I don't know how many examples we need to hear from people to know that more money, more fame, more success doesn't make you happy. I mean, in modern, you know, recent years, I think the, the best case study of this is Robin Williams. You know, I talk about a man who had it all. He had clout. He had accomplishments. You know, he, he was the genie in Aladdin, right? Like, he had money. He had people who loved him. But tragically, he still took his own life. You know, once I was watching a show on Netflix talking about, you know, broke sports stars and these other celebrities. They, they get paid millions and millions and millions of dollars. And yet, just a couple of years later, they find themselves in financial ruin. And so I, I think something we need to consider here is this, that if men are selfish and keep their wealth to themselves and rob God of his portion, they will not prosper or if they do, no blessing shall come with it. There is a sense, guys, where you can get everything that you really wanted in life, but not enjoy the blessing that comes with it. 
And so I hope you see what God's main complaint for these people is. The complaint that the Lord has against his people here is that they care more about themselves than they care about what God wants. Are you ever guilty of that? You care more about your own agenda and your own life and your own success and your own entertainment more than you care about what the Lord would have you? It's a warning. Do you understand? It's a warning. It's a warning for us that if all you care about is just better temporal circumstances and more money, life will not pan out the way you hoped it would. Can I make a point too? Is it bad to desire to have a nice home one day? Because clearly that's what the people here, you know, verse 4, you know, they cared about paneled houses. I don't really know what that meant back then, but apparently that, you know, they probably wanted more than a three-bedroom, you know, 1,500-square-foot house. They wanted something a little nicer than that. Is it wrong to one day potentially have a nice car? To have an investment account that has a lot of money in it? You see, again, that's, that's not what the Lord is actually telling them. It is because they have cared more about their own life than they have cared about the Lord. And so it is not spiritual to tell people that if you want a nice life or you want nice things, that it's wrong. It's not, it's not true. The issue is that you care more about these things in your heart than you do about the Lord. And that is what's wrong. You know, the other day, my wife and I caught one of our daughters praying to the moon. You know, in her innocence and her sweetness. That's so cute. Just the moon is the moon is so beautiful, and it just I just thank you moon that you're so pretty, and I just love you moon. This is why, by the way, children need parents <laughs> who teach them about the Lord. You know? and we say, hey, hey, little girl, hey, little girl. Yeah, the, the moon is so, so pretty and so beautiful. But who made that? Oh, God did. Yeah. You know, and, and to be someone who cares more about your own life is, is to, is, it's almost as silly to, to worship what the Lord gives and not worship the actual giver. So it's a warning. You understand? It's a warning. Don't make life all about you. Sin is always absorbed about self. But next we see, um, second point is we, we see not just a warning about bad priorities, but we see a command to get better priorities. So it's not just like warning, but it's also, hey, you should do this. Look down with me at verse 4. Is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Look at verse 5, really interesting. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Look at verse 8 with me. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Right before that, excuse me, he says in the end of verse 7, consider your ways. Another way to translate this is to say, set your heart to your ways. Set your heart to your ways. 
You see, God deeply desires for his people to set their hearts and to ponder the trajectory of their own lives. He wants people to have discernment. He wants people who consider, how am I living my life? Am I living my life in a way that only brings me glory and honor and happiness? Am I living my life in a way that pretty much goes to show that I'm living for my kingdom and for my will? And so God, by telling them to consider to set your heart in different ways is really his command to say, learn to be someone who has better priorities. You know, me and Blake earlier were playing some Switchfoot songs, but one of my favorite Switchfoot songs is the song Life, Love, and Why. And it's funny, sometimes I'll, I'll have coffee with some of you guys and I'll meet with you and I, and I play this game and you might not even know that I'm playing with you, but I play this game of Life, Love, and Why. Is that funny to you? Yes. yes. I'm glad that I can also be a comedian up here. Um, and it's not like I'm, you know, sitting there trying to, you know, trick you, but, but, but here's the game. By me asking questions about your life, by me trying to be thoughtful about who you are, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to understand what is your life like? What do you love? And why? You can learn a lot about someone just asking questions. What are they interested in? What is their mind drifting towards? What are their fears? What are their hopes? What are they loving and why? And I'll tell you why I play this game. Because hopefully when I understand who you are a little bit, I know as a pastor how I, how I could potentially lead you to God's word in a way that's helpful to you. Either I can encourage you to continue doing some of the things that you're doing or to maybe exhort or challenge you to live a way that honors God. And really, in all discipleship relationships, you know, Jesus, when he approaches the woman at the well, you know what he's doing? He's, he's finding out what her life is like, what, what she loves and why. He's intentionally going deep with people. And I think it, it is with us that we, we need to do that with our own selves. What do I love? What, what, what is my life like? How do I spend my time? And why? Why is this the desire of my heart so much? Is, is there a fear or a desire here that is pleasing to God. And so self-awareness is a tool that if you want to be someone who learns to make better priorities, is a tool you must learn. And so what we see here in this command to give priorities that the Lord actually tells them, go up to the mountains, cut down some of them trees that I made, shave them down, make the temple again, do the work that God has for you. In essence, he's saying, learn to be someone who isn't afraid to sweat spiritually. In high school, this is a really, I think, important message because in high school, you are being taught and being told by everyone that right now you need to repair your life as best as you can for your adult life. And I agree with that. You should study. You should work hard. You should get a job if you, if you feel like you need to do that. But there's a sense in which that can all just become so self-absorbed and you forget that the Lord should be your first priority. And so making it a priority to get good grades or to be good at an instrument or to excel at a sport is a great thing. But God would now have us here go and make it about me now. There is a way to which you can pursue academic excellence 
please God. There is a way to excel in sports and to have a job and to please God about it. And I think that's the command that the Lord is calling us for here. And so lastly, after we see the warning for bad priorities and the command to get new priorities, here's all we're left with so far. You're right. I should do better. I watch too much Netflix. I don't pray enough. I should have better priorities. You know, just something like, I, I really, really want you guys to know that unless you embrace the conviction for something, you'll never actually learn to do the things you're being told to do with a willing heart. Your parents can maybe, you know, force you to do things you don't want to do because they have, you know, that parental privilege over you. But how do we actually, in the Christian life, learn to do things, not because we're just being told to constantly over and over and over again. And how do we actually learn to do things because it's our heart's desire? Isn't that a good question to ask? Because right now, if I just end the message, like, get better priorities, try harder, you know, you might kind of like, you're right, I should, you know, try a little harder, but, but really, I think God's word always leads us to having a heart change. And so this is where we see in verses 12 through 15, the third point, the solution for better priorities. Would you look down with me again at verse 12? Actually, we'll pick it up in verse, no, we'll pick it up in the middle of verse 12. So the remnant of the people... They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people feared the Lord. The people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatol, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Interesting turn of events. For years, they have been self-managed, fixated on their own priorities and their own desires. And so God sees his people, begins to turn their hard work into poverty. He sends a prophet. And as they hear these words, here's what happens. They feared him. Now, hopefully you understand that, that when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not always really talking about the way that we understand fear. Okay? I fear someone, you know, coming and just randomly shooting up the place at a movie theater. I fear really big, scary dogs that aren't trained well. You know, I fear um, someone getting behind the, 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 you know, the wheel of a car under the influence and hurting someone who I love. I, I fear those things. I'm scared of those things. But that is not the way in which Scripture is actually calling us to fear the Lord. Here's really what fear means in, in, in Hebrew. Respect, awe, and reverence. 
The people once again had a respect for God. They had an awe for him. They had a reverence for him. And when there is a lack of fear, when there's a lack of awe, respect, and reverence, it's pretty easy to cast aside the importance of making that person a priority. When you don't have respect or reverence for someone, you usually don't think about them that much. You usually don't go out of your way to try to be near them and to help them. But because the people heard this message, they feared. And so it is with us, guys, high schoolers, listen. The first thing we make priority in our life is having a fearful relationship with God. Do you you believe that God is worthy to stand in reverence and awe of? Do you actually believe that you have a God who is so big and so majestic that he is worthy of all, of every single person's worship? Do you believe in a God who is so big and so great that out of the fullness of who he is, he could create everything seen and unseen by the power of his word? You know, for the Christian, different than the person in the Old Testament Israelite, the way that we come to understand and fear the Lord is by understanding what he has done primarily through his son, Jesus. That this great big God that I just described is the same God who sees our predicament in sin, who understands that we will never in our own strength, in our own help, naturally love God. We will always in our own flesh obey God because we feel like we have to. God knows that our hearts are so selfish, so bent on ourselves, that we would always make ourselves the priority more than any other person. And he says, I must give them a new heart. I must write my law on the tablets in the flesh of their very heart. I must give them my spirit. And all of that is only allowed because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so when the people feared the Lord, here's what we see. The Spirit of God came and moved among them. And the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is what literally caused the people to stand up and to go make this new priority. And it is the same thing for us. We need the Spirit to be the supernatural help and aid to get us up and to make the Lord the rightful priority of our lives. And so if I can just take us to one quick New Testament passage in closing. I think this is a great passage for us to consider. Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 is just now getting to the application of the book of Romans. Kind of wild, right? I mean, I'll say there is an application before this, but this is finally... After 11 chapters of just gospel doctrine upon gospel doctrine and truth, he finally comes to chapters 12 and following, and he gives special instructions of what does it now look like for someone to trust and believe in the gospel. And here's what we see in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, in essence, Paul understands something. He understands 
That when you consider the sinfulness of your sin, yet you understand the grace of God in Christ, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, here is what your natural response should look like, that you are a living sacrifice. Do you know what that means? That means every single thing I do, I worship. It means that when I am at baseball practice, I can worship. When I'm doing my homework, I can worship. When my parents are giving me chores I don't want to do, I can worship. Everywhere I go, I am a living, walking temple. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I am constantly dying to myself. I am a sacrifice unto the Lord because of what he's done for me. And here's what I love what Paul says here. He says, this is your spiritual worship. Other translations say this, and I think it's a better translation than ESV. This is your reasonable act of worship. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, like, this isn't like the biggest worship you can do. It's not the smallest worship. It's just, it's just what the normal expectancy is now. That everything you do now, you worship Christ. That you are a living, walking temple. And this is the priority that can only come from someone who truly recognizes of what they have in Jesus. So the priority that we need is, one, we need to recognize the warning of bad priorities. Of the tendency to be selfish. We need to get new priorities. And we need to understand that the solution to better priorities is always the fear of the Lord, which comes with the discernment and the knowledge of who we are in Jesus. And when we understand that, I pray, guys, I listen, I pray for you often, that your priority, when you wake up tomorrow, when you go to school on Tuesday, is that you would be a living sacrifice. That you would not be conformed to this world, but rather that you'd be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may, by testing, be able to discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. The people of Judah cared more about their own lives. But the Lord says to his people, these things can't even compare to the life that you have in me. Be warned of false priorities. Get new ones and find the solution for a new heart in who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the message of the prophet Haggai. I ask God that you would help us to heed the words of the Apostle Paul, that we would present our bodies to you as living sacrifices. God, that we would worship you in every single thing that we did in life. And so, Lord, we ask now that you give us the strength to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.